All right, so I'll start over. So I, I had lunch with Mike on Thursday, and uh, he, he asked me, what is, what is up with that reading, all of those names? There are actually 42 groups that are listed here in uh, basically Israel's phone book. So we read from the phone book today, which is about as exciting as it was. And so why would we do this today? Um, why, first of all, was it recorded in the first place? And second, why did we think it was important enough to read? If you're a guest here today, we typically don't read this kind of a passage. They're, they're rare. They're, not, they're throughout the Old and New Testaments, these lists of names. Um, but it's not common. But if you put yourself into the context of the story, uh, Israel had been exiled from its home for 70 years. And God had told Israel years before that they would be exiled into this foreign nation, into Babylon for 70 years, and then they would be allowed to return. And so Nehemiah and Ezra record the return of Israel from Babylon to its home. It's several generations they've been gone. This current generation, all they have is stories. All they know is a lifetime of being enslaved in a foreign nation. All they have is stories from the way things used to be. There are a few. There are a few that the text records um, that remembered when they were kids the ancient city. And so here they come back. Nehemiah's story is about them rebuilding the walls of their home, of the capital of Jerusalem. And so they had this entire group of people. Now think back to a group project that you may have been involved in, either as a young person or, or someone older, maybe at a job, okay, that you participated in. It took a lot of work. It took a lot of effort. It took a lot of dedication. Throughout this process, they were being um, attacked by people that lived in the land that didn't want them to rebuild the walls, I mean, like militarily attacked. They were being ridiculed. They were being persecuted. Um, and so it's a struggle. But they accomplished this, this rebuilding of the wall within 52 days. So imagine that time when you worked on a group project that was of utter significance and importance to yourself and to, and to your people, to your group, to your job, to your employer, and you weren't acknowledged. Or let's just say they acknowledge, this is even worse, they acknowledged a few, but they didn't acknowledge everyone. They maybe acknowledged the, the leaders or the rulers, but didn't acknowledge the people that did the actual work. It was important to God to have recorded those who did the work. Most of the people in this list are never listed anywhere else in the Bible. They're remembered for participating in the building of this wall. And it's not as if this wall or this city at this time was something that was going to last forever. As we can see by the end of the story, in these, both of these books, Israel was doing the same things that got them exiled into the in the first place. They were returning back to their old ways of rejecting God and pursuing their own interests. For the next few centuries, the city of Jerusalem and the nation of Israel would struggle. They'd still be under foreign rule, and they would get destroyed again. But at this point, at this point, 
these are the purposes of God, to fulfill his word by the prophet Jeremiah, that they would go back, that they would rebuild the city, and they would dwell there. So they are fulfilling God's word. They are a part of his eternal purposes. And, I, and, and today, we're, there's obviously no deep central teaching passages in this text on on the nature of God or the gospel. This isn't a popular text that people go to and preach and teach from a lot, obviously. But there are some important things to see here, and we need to recognize that for some reason this text is in the Scripture. It, it is highlighting the importance of everyone participating in the purposes of God that he has for them at that time. And so I just want to make a few observations or conclusions from this text. First of all, and this connects us back to the series that we just got, uh, we completed earlier um, this year on Philippians, that first observation, unity of mind and purpose produces unforeseen and unbelievable results. One of the passages out of Nehemiah that we looked at a few weeks ago, we saw that the, the dwellers in the land, the people that were already there, the other nations that didn't want Israel to come back and rebuild as a city, they were alarmed and di discouraged because the walls had been rebuilt within 52 days, and it says that they knew that their God was with them. See, that is what unity does. If you remember the message of the book of Philippians, Paul writes that he wants them, above all things, to be standing firm as one person with one mind, with one spirit, for the progress and the advancement and the faith of the gospel. Regardless of who we are or where we're at in the church, regardless of what our vocation is, what our gender is, what our age is, Paul says, listen, we are all the people of God and we have one purpose, to live a life worthy of the gospel and to hold forth the words of the gospel. Those are the, those are the things that we see. We live for the faith of the gospel. Jesus' prayer, main prayer before he ascended was that we would be unified and in our being unified, having one, one mind and one purpose and one spirit, the world would see, just like the world around Ezra and Nehemiah's time, the world we would see that our God is with us. Because, there is a, because love and unity are expressions that the world cannot hold. Bringing diverse people together from all kinds of backgrounds in the midst of ongoing sin, sinning against each other, challenging each other, in the midst of ongoing needs, meeting each other's needs, God holds his people together, and when people of the world see that love and they see that unity, they see God. And so that is our, one of our greatest testimonies to the world is unity. And as we have looked at this series, as we focus on renewal, there are some things that we need to focus on. We need to be unified in dependent prayer. We need to be unified in the core ideas of the gospel. The depth of our sin is great. The depth of God's grace is greater. And we are in this constant place, as Lawrence mentioned this morning in his greeting, we are in a constant place of needing God's grace. 
and in the strength of that grace, engaging in love and good deeds to the world. That's what we're called to do. The second thing I want to make an observation of is that all of us are called, this is kind of a, they're all kind of coming out of this first one. All of us are called to the purposes of God. And I want to just note a few of the people that Nehemiah called out here. Because they're not all described in detail, but there are a few that are. The first one, the perfumers. Does anybody know a perfumer? Does anybody, is, is anybody in here a, a perfumer? He calls out the goldsmiths, which are the jewelers. And he calls out a regional ruler, and the regional ruler isn't unique, but it says that his daughters helped. So we've got a perfumer, we've got jewelers, and we've got a man, with, which seems like he didn't have sons, but maybe he did, but his daughters all piled in to help. Now, why did he call out the perfumer or the jeweler? I think it's because at that time, as would be the case now, we would find it odd to see a perfumer and a jeweler on a construction crew. Wouldn't, wouldn't we not? I mean, go look up perfumer on Google and then contractor on Google. You'll see that everything about them is very different. The clothes they wear, the way they portray themselves, the tools of their trade. But it was important for Nehemiah to call out and say, listen, even the jewelers and the perfumers, people that wouldn't necessarily engage in the work of stone masonry, concrete work, metal crafting, iron, steel, They wouldn't normally do those things, but because the purpose was significant and important enough and God was calling them to it, they did it. They did it. See, all of us can engage in the things that Christ has called us to be unified in. All of us can engage in aggressive, dependent kingdom prayer. God is wanting to manifest his kingdom. See, we're no longer concerned about a piece of land in the Middle East. I mean, we are, but we're concerned about all of the land of the world because God has called his church to all the nations. The kingdom of God is to be around us. The Spirit of God was given to us, and it has been given to this world so that the, the light shines and grows and the darkness fades away. And when Jesus Christ comes back, that, that ultimate vision for the kingdom of God will finally be fulfilled. But we are called to have a vision for the kingdom of God right here and right now. And so every one of us can, can engage in these things. Prayer, fasting, a, a, a rigorous pursuit, like we talked last week, a rigorous pursuit to obey Jesus' teachings as he has given them to us. A, a, a constant recognition of the, of the depths of our sin and of a recognition that, that sin does not hold us down, but that 
God through the power of Christ and his death and resurrection on the cross and our faith in that strengthens us with a confidence and a hope. I was reading the book of Acts this week and Paul said, you know, I am the worst of all sinners, but it was God's purpose to show his grace to the world so that if they could see that a murderer of the church could become a starter of churches, if a murderer of Christians could then go proclaim and convert people to become Christians, because that's what Paul was. Paul affirmed the murdering of Stephen, and then Paul would sign off on the condemnations for people to be killed by the Jews in the first century. And so Paul, the worst of all sinners, was not kept down by the weight of his sin. Paul was risen up by the hope of the gospel. And my guess is, since Paul says that he's the worst of all sinners, that there's nobody here worse than Paul. And if Paul could be raised up out of the guilt of murder, my guess is, is that your sin cannot continue to be your oppressor and your slave master. The gospel is greater than your sin. And if you can't get over your sin, it means that you haven't grasped the fullness of the gospel yet, and it's time for you to really, what we called last week, rediscover the gospel. So wherever your sin is at on the continuum, okay, because when it really comes down to it, all sin is a manifestation of the heart. And all of us who sin have the same heart condition in that it, it, it enslaves us to evil deeds. So we're all the same. Our external manifestations may, de- may be different, but we're all the same. And we are all in need of that rediscovery of the gospel. And so whether you're a perfumer or a jeweler or a ruler with a whole family full of daughters, the work is for you. So wherever you're at, however you identify yourself in terms of your calling, your ultimate calling and your ultimate purpose are the purposes of God. Third, and third observation, individual interests and corporate interests are complementary. Individual interests and corporate interests are complementary. Now, what do I mean by this? Oftentimes we feel, um, as as individuals or as families, as households, that the church may be asking too much of us because it's going to affect us in a greater way. And here's the cool thing in this passage. Some people are building a length of wall that would be equivalent to about 500 yards. Some of them are building a length of wall that's just the width of their house. You know what? The people that are building the wall that's just the width of their house, it may be all they can do. It doesn't say why they only did the width of their house and why some are building a wall 500 yards long. Because the text is the story of the rebuilding of the wall. 
And it starts with the sheep gate and ends with the sheep gate. So basically, Nehemiah is just going around the whole length of the wall. Some people are building long lengths. Some people are just building enough for the width of their house. And here's the thing. It's important that that wall that's as wide as their home was built. It's important for the community. Because that section of wall could have been a place for the enemies to come through. It needed to be rebuilt. And it was important for the household. Because if that section of the wall didn't get built, the enemy was going to come through their house. So you see, we, we had, I, had a, I had a wonderful question as I've been going around to the house churches asking and asking questions to see if people had any any questions or comments about the building process that we've been in. And we're asking for money. We're asking for the church to donate money so that we can buy a building sometime in the next few years. It's a community need. And I think think most of us that have been around for very long and all understand that it's, it's an important need that we have. We're not going extravagant. But when somebody raised a question and said, Here's where we're at as a household. I don't have any issues, and I think it's a great idea that we build a building. We've got money that we give regularly to the church budget. We've got money that we give regularly to to Twin Cities Ministries. And we just don't have any more money left. And I don't want to take from the things that I'm already given to in order to give to the building. And I said, you know what? Thank you for your generosity to the church and to Twin Cities Ministries. God has and will raise up the people who give to meet the need of the building because it's a community need. You're giving to the community and are meeting community needs. If you can't contribute to the building, that is absolutely fine. That household could take care of the things that they figured they could take care of in their good conscience, and that is what we want. That's what God's calling us for. When we really pursue the interests of our household, it's also serving the interests of the church. Those things can't be fragmented, as, as Eli communicated this morning. We will suffer if all we concern ourselves, if, if, if we only concern ourselves with our own interests. We will suffer, and the community will suffer. And we will suffer if we only concern ourselves with the community interests and don't pay attention to what we're responsible for. The two go hand in hand. Strong individuals and strong household make strong churches. Strong churches lead to strong individuals and households. If you look at the perfumers and the jewelers, they help build the wall. And that creates security, and security creates prosperity, and people with more money can spend more money on luxuries like perfume and jewelry, right? You're not going to be concerned about perfume and jewelry when you don't have food or clothing. And so the perfumer and the jeweler recognizes that, hey, this is is not just good for me, it's good for the community, and then the community, see, there's these cycles, they will have returns, 
And then if there's prosperity, there's sons and daughters getting married because there's lists of sons and lists of daughters in these texts and throughout the rest of Ezra and Nehemiah. And those people then start to get married because they feel like it's prosperous and secure enough to get married. And then they go buy more perfume and more jewelry, which is what we do when we get married, right? Fourth observation, our search for meaning and purpose will not be fulfilled unless seen in the greater context of the purposes of God. Let's continue to look at the perfumer and the jeweler. What do they do? They beautify. They make things look attractive. They make things smell attractive. And it's nice. It's nice. Those are things that we enjoy. Those are things that God has put within us to respond to. It's nice to look nice. It's nice to smell nice. I wear a, um, it's the, uh, I think it's Christian Dior Sauvage. Johnny Depp is the promoter of it. The cologne I used to wear Anna's allergic to. <laughs> so I had to buy some new cologne. And I saw that in an advertisement on the magazine while I was flying. So when I got to the next airport, I said, hey, I'm looking for, I, th I called it savage. You know, I didn't know I was supposed to pronounce it sauvage. I said, it's the, the Johnny Depp ad in the airline magazines. That's what I'm looking for. Oh, that's sauvage. And then Antonio smelled it on me. He says, I like that what you're wearing. So I got him a bottle of Sauvage next time I saw him too. We like perfume. We like cologne. We like makeup. We like jewelry. These things are wonderful in the context of a life that is in pursuit of God's purposes. Things that beautify will destroy us as all things do when they are pursued outside of God's purposes and when they are pursued as God's. It's an article that Megan Garber from The Atlantic wrote last year on, on beauty. And she compared beauty to the prosperity gospel. She called beauty a prosperity gospel. A prosperity gospel is, is if you do more, if you give more, it's always up to you, but the more you do, the more you will receive, the better you will be. And isn't that what we communicate in our beauty and weight loss advertisements? The more working out, the more product, the more diets, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The more you give, the more you will receive. David Foster Wallace says, if you worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you, you will always feel ugly. When time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you in the ground. If we pursue these things, good things that God has given to us to enjoy, food, clothes, perfume, jewelry, houses, any of these kinds of things, if we set those within the context of loving God and loving other peoples, these things serve that greater end. If we don't have God as our king and are putting ourselves and our things in service to him, but these things become God, 
these things become what we define our identity by, they will kill us. They will eat us alive. Fifth observation, our scope and capacities will be different, but they all matter. I've already referred to some people built a portion of the wall as wide as their house, like maybe 30 or 40 feet maybe, maybe 50 feet if it's a large house, versus the 500-yard sections that some people built. And some people may not have been building at all. Some people may have just been helping plan and strategize and manage people and bring the food or bring the water. Remember the woman that gave two coins that Jesus referred to? They're sitting out in the temple grounds and people are donating money and putting their money into the, the pot. And the woman comes up and gives two coins. And Jesus says, that woman gave more than all of the rest because she gave all she had. See, when we, when we think about how we fit into the purposes of God and, and what we're going to do and the fruit we're going to have, we need to, we need to recognize that God has given to each of us a measure of faith and capacities and a scope for the need at the time at where we're at. Some of us are going to build huge, long walls, some of us are going to build short ones. It doesn't matter. It's not what God is looking for. What God is looking for is the heart that says, I want to serve God, and I'm going to use what I have with what I've been given to do that. Remember, there's a, and I don't like to quote from Lord of the Rings because it's so full of great things. And it's a little, and it, we're a little ways away from the popularity around it. But it, it's a, it, there's a scene that it, it's probably one of the more pressing scenes on me from a meaningfulness standpoint. It's when, uh, it's when um, the Fellowship of the Ring is sitting in Moria and they're deciding where to go. They've entered into this cave underneath this mountain. It's going to take them six days to get through this cave, to get to the other side, and 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 to get where they need to go. And and Frodo, who's carrying the responsibility of, of destroying this ring, he's got this ring in his possession, and he's sitting down there and he's complaining. He says, I wish this had never come to me. And then Gandalf says, many people in your situation think the same thing. He says, but it is not for us to decide who we are or where we're at or with what we have to do. What's up to us is to be responsible with what we have been given. It's one of the more poignant scenes in the entire movie, I think, because we can grumble or complain that we've got too much to bear, or we can grumble and complain that we have too little. I could do more, I could be, you know, we can go either way. What God isn't looking for, he's not looking for quantity. He will bring about the fruit. What he wants is a heart that's devoted to him. And finally, the sixth observation is that those who contribute will be remembered. This wall would eventually fall down. Israel would once again get wiped out, demolished, or excuse me, Jerusalem would once again get wiped out, demolished, and destroyed 
But you know what? The names that are written in the eternal word of God are never going to leave. Those people will be remembered. All of these strange names and strange places and strange gates, these people are going to be remembered. And that's what God says of us. That's what God says of our works. If you're a believer, and this is in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, maybe 1 Corinthians chapter 5, one of the two. He says, when we, when we as Christians come before God, our works are going to be put under judgment. And it's a judgment, and it's using the metaphor of fire. And we are going to be judged. And he says our works are either represented by hay, wood, and stubble, or our works are represented by gold, silver, and precious gems. And God is going to put that fire on those works. And if our works have been nothing in the Lord, if we have not pursued Him or His purposes, if we have not obeyed His word, everything that we've lived our life for will be burnt up. And we will stand before Him in what the Apostle John calls great shame and fear. Not of losing our salvation, because Paul clearly says, they will have the foundation in Christ, but he says barely. <laughs> it's one of those texts I want to ask about. What do you mean by barely? They will have their foundation in Christ that will not be burnt up, but they will have nothing to show for their faith, and they will have to answer to God for living a life of being irresponsible and squandering what God has given them. And then those who have built good works on the foundation in Christ. They've pursued Jesus. They've obeyed His Word. They've served. They've sought to progress the gospel. Fire only refines gold and silver and precious metals. It makes them better. But they last. They will be there. They will be there. They're not going away. They will be remembered. They will be remembered. And so, how can we fail in participating? How can we fail in participating and not doing our part? I think we can do it in two ways. Early on in the text it says, the nobles, the Tekoites repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve the Lord. So we can think too highly of ourselves and not engage in the work. And I think we can do the inverse. We can think too lowly of ourselves. So if we think too highly, so high that we remain uninvolved, we're, we're too good. I'm already good as actually probably the mindset. I'm already good. I'm already doing good things. I don't need to do these things. Well, the gospel teaches us that God made us in his image. So in, in that way, we all do possess some measure of good. But not from a moral standpoint. Because then the Bible also teaches that sin has corrupted us. And that there is nothing good in us from a moral standpoint. 
Yes, we are created by God and we are made in his image. And any of the good things about us are things, they're good because God has given them to us. But we have been corrupted by sin that we have actively chose to engage in. But for those of us that think that we are too good, there's something about the way God has made us that we, that we can boast in. It gives us an edge. Something that we can elevate ourselves over others, that we can put some stock in, and that we can build our lives around. And for these nobles, it was their nobility. We are above this work. I don't have to do it. Well, that conceited thinking masks. We grab hold of something that we want to identify with and say this is us and makes us great, makes us better than others. And what it does is it masks what we know is on the inside. Because all of us are grasping. All of us are grasping for something to make us great and to make us good. And some of us have some really great things to grab hold of. And we build our lives around them. That's what arrogance does. It blinds us to our need. It blinds us to our moral depravity. It blinds us to the needs of others. And it blinds us to our ability to step in and help. And the thing is... We never can back off from what that thing is, whatever it is we put our stock in. But as David Foster Wallace said, he says, eventually it's going to kill you, and you're going to die a a million deaths on your way there, because eventually whatever it is you put your stock in is going to fail you. If it's your beauty, if it's your wealth, if it's your skill, whatever, eventually it's going to fail you. And at that point, and hopefully a long time before, That's the perfect time to accept the gospel. When you recognize that whatever it is you put your stock in about yourself, it's not going to be able to save you forever. You see its weakness. You see how you've been masking and hiding your other problems with it. And you say, and you open yourself up to Jesus' identity to Jesus' worth, to Jesus' glory. Because the offer of the gospel is, is you don't have to hide and, and put things up to cover over the evil that is within you. You don't have to think that you're going to be perfect in this particular thing that you've put all your stock in. You can have Jesus Christ, the Son of God, His full glory, His full morality, His full love, And you can let that cover you, and you can give up on your efforts to be something. And if you think too lowly, that's where you don't see any good in you. How could I can contribute? I don't have that skill. I don't have that money. I don't have those looks. Whatever it may be. It's the same problem because you're looking for something to take stock in about yourself. And because you can't find anything within yourself that gives you the, the moral courage, the motivation to move forward and to jump in and dive in and say, hey, yes, I can help, I can do that, this is what I'm good at. You don't have anything like that, maybe? Which I don't think is true, but I think accusation and doubt 
overshadowed us, overshadows us because I do believe God has created each of us with a particular gift to give if we can find him. And that's where the gospel's appropriate and needed in this place. Oftentimes, we're so discouraged and demoralized about ourselves because we can't, we can't put our identity. We can't say, hey, this is who I am, and this is what I'm good at, and this is what I'm going to do. Because what we want to do, what we want to do is driving us, but it's not what God has called us to do. It's not what God has gifted us to do. It's not what God through Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit wants to do in us. But we keep holding out for these dreams, but the dreams are a deception. And we keep holding out for the gifts and the opportunities to accomplish those dreams, and they never come. And we don't think we'll ever fulfill what we're called to do. Well, it's because what you're called to do is really fit within the context of God's purposes. And until you know Jesus Christ, and until you engage yourself in his purposes, you're not going to find what it is that you're looking for to give you a sense of fulfillment and a sense of worthiness, because Christ again is offered, I will make you worthy, I will give you energy, I will give you motivation, I will give you a calling, I will give you that fulfillment. So that's the gospel. He's calling us to get involved. Get involved. All of us can do these things. Engage in dependent prayer. Discover the gospel anew. Engage in good works to meet the needs of the people in your life. See that there are people around you that don't know Jesus and fervently pray and fast and engage them. Show hospitality. The kingdom of God wants to emerge where you're at, and Jesus is calling you and will empower you to do it. Let me pray.